This morning we'll read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, reading verses 1 through 15. So I invite you to open up your Bibles and turn there as we read together. Um, as we return to 2 Corinthians, it is of note that uh, we won't be here very long, um, as today does mark the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, so starting next week, we're going to take a break from 2 Corinthians and turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 as uh, we prepare for Christmas um, appropriately so. And uh, I, I would invite you to come back and uh, consider inviting a friend. Um, as you know, our attendance post-pandemic, uh, since the pandemic started, I should say, um, obviously is not what it was before the pandemic. And uh, that's true of every church I've come across. And I would encourage you, if there are friends or family, as you look around, that were regular attenders that came here uh, before COVID rocked our world, consider uh, reaching out to them again and inviting them to come back and, and join us for our time in Isaiah 8 and 9 as we get ready for Christmas. Uh, it was my hope to be done with Second Corinthians by Christmas, but due to circumstances outside of my control, it just wasn't possible. And so we'll revisit it uh, there this morning, and then we'll pick it up back in the new year. Um, for now, though, let's go ahead and turn our attention to God's word together, and then we'll ask for his wisdom and guidance. Once again, this is Second Corinthians chapter 1 through 15. Paul writes to the Corinthians, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with, uh, when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And Father, as we engage with the scriptures now, I pray that uh, we would tread carefully yet cling confidently to your good, perfect, and living word. Father, as your spirit originally inspired these words to be written, would your spirit now illuminate the meaning of them to us as you intend? 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Around this time, 18 years ago, I was uh, attending our uh, the youth ministry in my home church that I had grown up in. Um, and this one particular night of youth group, this absolutely beautiful girl walks through the doors for the very first time. And being a high school guy, I obviously took notice and decided that she was somebody that I wanted to get to know. And I didn't scare her away because she kept coming back to youth group. And as I built a friendship with her, I grew more attracted to her, not just from her outward physical beauty, but more so her beautiful soul. And to this point, I had never dated a girl in my life, but I was determined that this girl would be my first girlfriend. The problem, however, was that I was not the only guy who took notice of her in the youth group. There was another guy in the youth group who was also interested. And if I could be frank with you, the odds were stacked against me. Um, This guy was two years older than me. And uh, I am convinced that almost every single girl that came across his path was utterly infatuated with him. He was so charming and so alluring to girls that when my mom found out that he was interested in the same girl that I was interested in, she looked at me right in my face and my own mother said, oh, honey, you don't stand a chance. (laughs) My mother's here this morning. She can answer to that for herself. Regardless, I pursued the girl and I ended up proving my mom wrong because beyond all logic, she chose me over this other guy and we began dating just a few months after we had met. Um, it's such a vivid memory for me because that girl would go on to become my wife. It was uh, uh, Sarah. We would we would date for four years uh, before I proposed uh, during my senior year of college, and then just a year later we got married on the date that we actually started dating. Five years prior, the exact date. Uh, this is not an uncommon love story, right? A, a, a girl, guy meets girl story in, in our time in a culture where a man and a woman fall in love and they decide for themselves, yeah, we just, we, I can put up with this person for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll spend the rest of our lives with each other. And, and while one might love a good love story, we must remember that most of the love stories that we come across today are viewed through the lens of our culture. Uh, however, when we come across the picture of marriage in Scripture, like we do in our passage today, it's order. It's important um, to, to, in order to understand the passage and to understand Paul's illustration here, we must look at marriage through the lens of their culture, not ours. See, we must remember that this was written in a real time to real people with a real purpose. And for us to understand the passage as it applies to us, we actually first have to understand the passage as it applies to them, as they understood it. We must understand marriage as the original reader understood marriage. And when we do that, we actually come to find that marriage, as it was designed by God himself, portrays the rich narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what I mean by that. 
in biblical times, the process of marriage looked much different than it does today. In those days, the parents, and specifically the father, would actually choose a bride for his son. And then he would send his son to to the bride's father, to the bride's place, to pay what was known as the bride price. And once he paid the bride's price, it would commence this betrothal period. It was an engagement. And a betrothal was considered almost as binding as marriage itself. So much so that you would actually have to secure a certificate of divorce in order to get out of a betrothal. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the bride was under obligation and responsibility to faithfully commit to her bridegroom during that betrothal period. So this this bride price would commence the betrothal period. The son would then return to his father's house to prepare a portion of it for him and his bride. And when all of the necessary preparations were complete, the groom would then journey back to get his bride and bring his bride to his father's house for a wedding feast and for a permanent union. Likewise, the Bible actually teaches us that our heavenly father, God has chosen a bride for his son, Jesus, and he has sent Jesus to pay the price to have her. And shockingly, Jesus is to marry the church. Sinners, sinners as, as, as one body and the price to have them was his very life given in sacrificial death on the cross. And then Jesus returned to his father's house saying, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And now as believers, as we await Jesus's return as the bridegroom and we wait for this great wedding feast and the permanent union with him, we we wait for that until he comes back to get his own. But until that day comes, those of us who are believers, those of us who have trusted Jesus for our salvation, we are like a bride in the betrothal period. And this is the metaphor that Paul presents to the Corinthians here in chapter 11, having been the founder of the Corinthian church as the first one to carry the message of Jesus to the Corinthians, Paul is like a spiritual parent to the Corinthians. And in verse 2, Paul explains that as a father, Paul has betrothed them to one husband. He has pledged them as as a body to Jesus. He has presented them to Christ. And not only that, Paul presents them to Christ, he says, as a pure virgin. Once again, in biblical times, it was expected that the bride would faithfully commit to her husband, but it was considered the responsibility of the father of the bride to ensure her purity, the purity of his daughter up until the wedding day. Now, this is a concept that we can understand and even respect today. We still see that desire in many fathers play out 
rightfully so in our culture. Bear with me as I bring you back to when Sarah and I first started dating. When I picked her up uh, for our first date, Sarah wanted to introduce me to her father. And so she brought me down to their basement where there was a full gym and a behemoth of a man standing down there in mid-workout with a tank top on and his biceps on full display. Her father hadn't said a single word to me, yet I heard him loud and clear. Paul presents the Corinthians to the bride as a, as a bride to Christ, and then he flexes a little bit here in this passage. He takes it upon himself to ensure their purity until the wedding day. But, but in verse 2, we find that there's a problem. Paul is divinely jealous for them. He is burning with zeal for the Corinthians. Why? Well, he explains because there is a seducer in their midst. There's a seducer, another suitor who is not their husband, has placed himself into the picture. And he is charming. And he is handsome. And boy, is there's just something so mysteriously attractive about him to the Corinthians. And the bride's gaze, which was once so fixated on Christ, now is magnetically pulled towards this other man. And Paul fears that if he doesn't step in as the fatherly figure that he is, if he doesn't take action, then the bride, the church, will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what Paul wants for the Corinthians, right? That they would have this sincere, authentic, profound, unadulterated devotion to Christ. Paul's desire for his spiritual daughter is that she will find her full satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. Yet they are being lured away from Jesus as their supreme treasure. And Paul doesn't want them to dilute their lives with other things that they think in their immaturity and in their youth will satisfy them because Paul, as the spiritual father, knows that this other man, this seducer is bad company, that this other man will only lead his daughter first to dissatisfaction and disappointment, disappointment, and then second, ultimately, it will lead to her death. And we know that's how serious this is because Paul uses a comparison in this passage that's a callback near the dawn of time itself where he likens this situation as a replay of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Paul is saying, this is a rerun. I've seen this episode before and I know how it ends because your seducer is like that crafty serpent who deceived Eve by his cunning. And it's with this illustration that we gain clarity to, to not just what's happening with the Corinthians, but how it's happening. Right? He says that the, the serpent deceived Eve. He lied to her. That's what's happening. And he did it, how? By his cunning, by his craftiness. That's how it happened. He did not draw her by force. He did it by manipulation. 
The devil sold her a bill of goods, made promises that he couldn't deliver. Right? Consider how uh, the events played out in the garden in Genesis 3. If you're unfamiliar with the passage, I'll revisit the story. God creates everything. Right, And he creates man and, and woman, and, and they are to enjoy and able to enjoy the perfect presence of God. And God instructs them that in all of the garden, you can, have, you can have all of this. You can have all of this. You can have all my presence. You can enjoy all my blessings. But he instructs them to, to avoid touching one tree in the garden. And the reason he tells them to not touch the tree, because if they eat of it, they will surely die. You see, with that, we see that he wants, God wants what's best for them. He wants them to not die. And the tree doesn't matter anyway, because they have plenty of other trees to eat from. They didn't need the tree to satisfy and fulfill their stomachs, because they have God. Yet one day, both Adam and Eve find themselves by this one tree. And what does the serpent say to Eve in Genesis 3? Did God, Eve, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Eve answers the question, right? But then the serpent goes on to say, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then we see the temptation set in for Eve. That looks an awful lot like the Corinthians, right? One of the most devastating verses in all of Scripture, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and eight. We see in this story and in the case of the Corinthians that the spiritual battlefield primarily resides in our minds. Right? It's in our thought life. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians that their thoughts will be led astray. And why just in the previous chapter he takes every thought captive to obey Christ. In Genesis, in the Genesis account, we see Eve's thought life. And by the time our thoughts have been overcome and, and, and we buy into the lies and deceit of the devil, it's much too late. The damage is done. At that point, the evil one doesn't even need to do anything else because you'll do it yourself. We notice that all the certain had to do was convince Eve that God was not enough and that she needed something else. He didn't force anything on her. He didn't even have to offer the fruit because she's the one that took the fruit. She took it herself. He didn't have to offer it. Sometimes we try and justify our sin with that trite statement, oh, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You did it. And you did it willingly under your own volition, even if influenced. But what's important to remember is that because we are so incredibly susceptible to the evil one's influence, we must keep our gaze on Christ. We must have a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. 
which is Paul's desire for the Corinthians for good reason. If you've been with us in our study of this letter, you'll know that what Paul is referring to in this seducer are these other false teachers that have come into the church in Corinth, uh, the church of Corinth in Paul's absence, and they've discredited Paul's message so that they could provide another message, a substitute. Paul, Paul says in verse four, they've come in, they've proclaimed another Jesus, they've brought another spirit, and they present a different gospel. And you as the Corinthians have let it happen. They, you have let them come in. You have given them a foothold. Right, right? Paul says, they, 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 you as the Corinthians, put up with it readily enough. You've let them come in and have influence. Uh, the, 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 these, these false teachers have planted a deceptive seed in their mind. You see, don't, don't we see as we study this that these other false teachers in Corinth have done exactly what the serpent did. Genesis 3, the Genesis account is like a blueprint for the seducer in 2 Corinthians. First, step one, challenge God's word. Did God really say, Eve, that you shouldn't eat this fruit? Did he say that? Is Paul really an apostle of Christ? Can you really trust him to be a messenger of Christ? Guys, you, you look how weak he is and how wounded he is. You really think he's somebody from God? You really think that, that, that Jesus is the suffering servant? Step one, undermine God's word, challenge God's word. Did God really say, the, the devil said to Eve, you're not gonna die. You, you really think you're gonna die, Eve? Eve, listen to me. God is lying to you and his word cannot be trusted. The serpent challenges God's word and then step two, he offers a cheap substitute. Eve, not only is God lying to you, but he is withholding something from you. He's withholding something from you. God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because he knows, he knows if you do this, your eyes are gonna be opened. And you are going to be like God. You will be wise like God, Eve. You will know the difference between good and evil. You'll have this special secret knowledge that God is withholding from you. Eve, you could be God. Doesn't that sound good to you, Eve? Think about all of the promises that are made in that moment. The devil promised independence. He promised freedom for the self. He promised wisdom. He promised Adam and Eve that they could live as they pleased without consequence. And it ended disastrously for them. And not just them, but every last offspring that followed. You see, this issue was not just a problem for Adam and Eve. And it's not just a problem for the Corinthians. It is a problem for us Today, God's word is undermined and we are offered a cheap knockoff gospel, which is no gospel at all, as Paul says in Galatians 1, and we are tempted to buy into it. And many of us, with and without the church, fall into it. Just a few weeks back, I came across an article on the website, The Gospel Coalition, that was entitled, Self-Worship is the world's fastest growing religion. 
And right at the beginning of the article, it quotes some statistics which state that 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Further, 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. And 91%, 91% of Americans affirm this statement that to find yourself, you must look within yourself. That is a cheap knockoff gospel, which says everything you need for satisfaction and fulfillment and life and salvation can be found within yourself. You are enough. And that is the type of garbage that is sold to us on the street corners. And one of the primary challenges that we face in our culture is that we are constantly bombarded with other messages contrary to the gospel. Every which way we turn, there is not just one seducer, but there are thousands of them. There are thousands, and it can be foggy, and it can be disorienting. When my family was in New York a few weeks back, we stumbled across um, a famous toy store, FAO Schwartz in uh, the Rockefeller Plaza. And and I'll tell you that the place was absolute madness. It it was packed with shoppers from shoulder to shoulder. There were lights obnoxiously beaming every which way on and off and sounds blaring from all directions. And there were these employees that were performing toy demonstrations and they would literally shout to us, trying to get you to come over, come and see, come and observe, come and try out this shiny new toy. Every square foot of the building was vying for our attention. It was an assault on our senses to the point where I couldn't even think straight. It wasn't until I was out of it that I had some clarity. And I looked at Sarah and I looked at her and I said, what just happened? Like, what was that? That was a terrible experience. This is potentially where the Corinthians are at, trying to discern the messages coming from them from all different directions, being foggy, trying to figure it out. And being in the midst of that, it's cloudy. And so Paul, here in a second section, uh, in verses 5 through 12, actually offers some pretty convincing evidence that he has the Corinthians' best interest in mind and not these other teachers. And oddly enough, it's, it seems like a strange transition here, but it has everything to do with the fact that Paul preached God's word, preached God's gospel to them free of charge. Much like today, in those times, it was perfectly reasonable and acceptable for a professional public speaker to charge fees for his teaching and speaking engagements. Nobody would bat an eye at that. And if you go back to 1 Corinthians 9, Paul actually writes that, 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 that he as a preacher of the gospel has a right to earn money based on his preaching. And he offers several uh, points of support to that end. But in 1 Corinthians 9.12, Paul sacrificially denies that right. And then here again, it's reinforced in 2 Corinthians where he brings up the fact once again that he preaches the gospel free of charge. 
Once again, this seems odd. Why does this matter? Why does it matter in the context of the Corinthian church? And why did Paul not accept money for his teaching specifically there? It certainly couldn't have been because they weren't willing to pay, because they are obviously paying these other false teachers. In fact, if you if you wander down to verse 11, you see that Paul actually defends his love for the Corinthians in verse 11. Uh, and there may be an indication here that they actually took offense to Paul rejecting their money. They were willing to pay him. They're saying, Paul, please take our money. We want to pay you because we have this money. And they might have been offended by it. So it's not because they're not willing to pay him. It's not because they couldn't afford to pay Paul. Right? In that culture, in that area, this would probably not be the case. Paul even says this and reinforces this in verse 8, that he robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. I assure you that this does not mean that Paul literally robbed churches. Um, This is what he means by that. He goes on in verse 9 to explain that when he was in need, he didn't want to burden the Corinthians, so he accepted support from the churches in Macedonia. Corinth was a much wealthier region than Macedonia. Macedonia was in poverty. And so when it talks about Paul, quote, robbing these other churches... It means he accepted support from Macedonia who are in poverty and could use the money. And he used that money to support the, the, the ministry and fund his ministry in this prosperous town of Corinth. So if the Corinthians were willing to pay Paul and they had the means to pay Paul, why wouldn't he accept their money? Well, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 12 actually helps us out in his previous letter. Paul, Paul writes to them, nevertheless, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. For some reason, to accept payment from the Corinthians would put an obstacle, not universally. It doesn't mean that for the whole church. He's talking specifically to accept payment from you guys will put an obstacle in your context and in your culture. Paul knew the Corinthian church and he knew the culture of Corinth, that it was a city of materialism, that it was a city of pride, that it was a city of self-indulgence, and it was a city of self-confidence. And Paul knew that in that context and culture of, of where this church was located geographically, that for whatever reason unknown to us, to accept payment would actually serve as a deterrent to the gospel in their church. So Paul says, you know what? I'll do it for free. And we come to find in scripture that this becomes an issue of credibility in the Corinthian church. These other super apostles actually use this to their advantage and suggest that since Paul doesn't accept payment, it must mean that his message is worthless, that he as an apostle is illegitimate. But what the super apostles use as an argument against the legitimacy of Paul's ministry, Paul flips it around and uses it as a support for the fact that he is who he says he is. Because if anyone does something for free, It speaks to their motivation, primarily and specifically that they weren't doing it to get paid. 
the difference here between these other guys and Paul is the difference between going into ministry for a job and going into ministry as a calling. For Paul, he doesn't look at ministry as a way to make a living, but as a divine calling on his life from Jesus himself who captured his heart on the road to Damascus. Paul is an authentic messenger of God and he feels the need to communicate that to the Corinthians. And the primary way he communicates that he is actually an authentic messenger of God is by refusing their support. Paul accepts the Macedonian support who are in poverty because they didn't need to be convinced of his apostolic authority. But the Corinthians do. And so he works for free. And Paul unapologetically says, I'm not going to stop doing this. This will continue to be my pattern. Why? Verse 12, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Basically, Paul says, they would love for me to take a paycheck because then they would be regarded as the same, working under the same conditions. But I don't because I'm not in it for the money. That's not my motivation. In doing so, he undermines their claim, or in other words, he, he cuts them down. The, the image that we get is pulling the platform out from under them, pulling the rug out from under them, because these other false teachers would never do their work for free. They put Paul, almost for Paul to say to the Corinthians, see what happens when you stop paying them. See what happens. They will be out of town before you know it. And that will reveal who they really are, which is what Paul's greatest concern is, is unmasking the false teacher. Paul finishes in verses 12 through 15, describing who they really are. And now the gloves are off. Paul doesn't pull any punches in these final verses here. These are false apostles, he said. They are deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, disguising themselves. In this instance, this is no innocent misunderstanding. These men change their appearance, is what that word disguise means. They change their appearance, transform themselves in a deliberate attempt to conceal what they really look like. As I study this passage, I found myself singing um, one of the songs from Phantom of the Opera, if you're familiar with show tunes. Masquerade, paper faces on parade. Masquerade, hide your face so the world will never find you. There's a popular paraphrased quote from the 19th century French poet Charles Baudelaire that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You see, Paul says it should come as no surprise that these men disguise themselves because the devil himself disguises himself. Satan masquerades. And what's more alarming is that he masquerades, he disguises himself as an angel of light. You see, there's a follow-up quote 
to Baudelaire's, which says that the second greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he's the good guy. This final section of our passage is about the allure and the temptation of false teaching and the deceivingly beautiful messengers that deliver it. Many of the messages we receive in our culture tickle our ears, so to speak. They they stroke our egos, assure us of our security, tell us what we want to hear, and make us feel as though I can live peacefully and confidently without the one true God, Jesus Christ. Just yesterday, I received a letter in the mail from somebody a few neighborhood uh, a few neighborhoods down from mine. This person writes, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Kazarowski, oh, that's nice, very cordial. We're writing our neighbors to share hope for the future. If everyone wants peace, why is there so much war? Have you ever wondered if we'll ever see a peaceful world? The news is that a better world is near. Okay, I'm hooked. I like that. An ancient book of wisdom, the Bible, tells us of a better world soon to come. They're quoting the Bible here. This must be legit. For instance, Psalm 37, 10, 11 says, just a little while longer, uh, the, the wicked will be no more. The meek will possess the earth. Who would be no more the wicked? The wicked will be gone without the wicked people. Doesn't it make sense that the, this would result in peace? I want peace. How could this come about? It's not reasonable that man could accomplish this. Only the creator of the universe would have the power to accomplish this. They're talking about God. The Bible contains many references to a better world. Many of us are familiar with what uh, Jesus, how Jesus taught us to pray. You're talking about Jesus. Matthew 6.10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done as it is in heaven. Where would God's will be done? Here on earth. What a wonderful future to look forward to. I'm hooked. This is legit. I want peace. I want a better future. If you'd like to know more about the Bible, prom- what the Bible promises, please contact us at the above address or go to the website jw.org, which for those of you who might not know, stand for Jehovah Witnesses, a religion that actively preaches another Jesus, one that is not the one true God and they actively preach another gospel that says Jesus wasn't enough for your salvation, that there's more. Don't you see how easy it is to be caught up in a snare? There are seducers vying for our attention, and they aren't hitting us over the head for the most part with a hammer bluntly forcing it upon us. No, they are gently wooing us whispering softly into our ears as to slowly turn our heads. And it's not too long if we're not careful to find ourselves in the same position as Eve. We see that the tree is good for food and that it's actually a delight to the eyes and that the tree is desired to to make one wise. And then we take the fruit willingly, and we eat it. And then most of the time, we give it to somebody else standing right there, standing close by and say, hey, this is pretty good. I like this. How about you give it a try? 
to return to the marriage illustration, that Prince Charming is certainly magnetic as he calls you to abandon your pure and sincere devotion to Christ. But as you fall into the arms of a seducer, you come to find that he's nothing but a horrid and foul monster who has overpromised and cannot deliver on such promises. With such deep consequences, how do we discern the true messenger of God from the false messengers who only appear to be from God? The answer is embedded in the text in verse 4. Paul writes that as false messengers, they preach another Christ and a different gospel. So that's the answer. We must examine their teaching and their message under the microscope of the gospel. We need to test every message that we hear against not what I think or what you think or what seems right or what feels good. No, we test every message against what God has to say in his word. And God's word is incarnate. In other words, it became flesh. God has revealed himself fully to us in the person of Jesus, fully God, fully man. That is the thrust of the Christmas season that we enter into right now. That is what we celebrate, that God has fully revealed to us everything we need in the person of Jesus. And so the litmus test of the deceiver is to ask them what they say about Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? And if anybody ever offers you anything other than Jesus or more than Jesus as defined in the scriptures, if anybody ever promises you something that Jesus did not promise, they are not from God. They are from the devil, whether they're doing it knowingly or not. And they will meet their end, as Paul says. But as for us, for the believers in this moment, let us fix our eyes, and gaze on Jesus in sincere, sincere and pure devotion as we eagerly await the glorious wedding day. Fix your eyes on Jesus until the day we can be with him in the flesh. Would you pray with me? And Lord, we confess that your word reveals one message about one person your son, Jesus, who is revealed to us as fully God and fully man by your one spirit. And as we daily draw near to you through Jesus, by the power of your spirit, would you, Lord, put a guard over our minds and our ears from all of the other messages claiming another way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.